Hi, my name is Elsie, and I help work out with um, the middle school ministry here at Lake Ave with their worship. Morning. I'm her brother, Dimitric, and I attend on Sundays. <laughs> Amen. Uh, let us stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading today takes to a well-known encounter Jesus had just after he had been anointed by the Holy Spirit. In the narrative, we see a real-life portrayal of what self-control empowered by the Holy Spirit looks like in the face of persistent temptation. We begin with Luke 4.1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. So the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Then we read in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Elsie and Dimitri. It's great to have a brother and sister read scripture. My, my kids fought, but maybe they'd read scripture. I know they would. All right, the fruit of God's spirit in your life, when God is finished in your life, um, is self-control. You know, I announced last weekend that that's what I'd be talking about, self-control. And so many people, after each one of the services, came up and said, Pastor Greg, of all these nine aspects of God's fruit in our lives, this is the most challenging. And I think many of us feel that way because we know that we all have areas of our lives that feel uh, out of control. I tell you, any time I've talked about a topic like this, self-control in the face of temptation, I've just sensed that so many people in church just have this feeling of, of shame and, and guilt, and because, uh, for those of you who may be new to a church, when you become a Christian, you, you just have this longing 
to walk with God and, and for your life to be so different. Um, it, it's kind of like Pastor Ray Ortland used to talk about the company of the committed. When we really make a commitment to follow Jesus, we, we want all of our lives to be shaped by, by what is good and what is right. And yet we go right out into the world, into our lives, into our families, and sometimes that tug to live in a way that we know God wouldn't want us to live is so powerful that it almost hurts. Um, and so we wonder, is that the way it's always going to be, this, this being pulled back and forth? I want to live for God, but I'm tugged over here. So I thought, I know it's a heavy topic, so I thought I'd start by showing this, this picture of a dog. Um, <laughs> have, you, have you ever seen this sort of thing? You know, that dog, uh, he wants to obey his owner, but he wants that biscuit so bad. Is that supposed to be our existence where there's just no joy or victory? Is that what self-control is all about? I want to tell you it's not our eternal way of living. Uh, so I've got to start with this declaration from God's Word to you. The fruit of God's Spirit, He gives the Spirit to you, is self-control. And that means that because God gives His presence and His power to you, you can, you can be assured that what He started in you He's going to bring to completion. He's forgiven your past. He's going to remake your present and your future. Someday, uh, we're going to be free from giving in to those temptations. Hallelujah, right? But I'm going to tell you, it's quite a journey. It's quite a journey. And the language that we've been looking at in Galatians 5 has all been that. It's, it's keeping in step with the Spirit. It's letting God lead us. And today, we're thinking about this aspect of self-control in the face of temptation. So let's, let's start by asking, as I've asked about each one of these aspects, what it is. What self-control is. So I went into all the dictionaries. And the one that I, I like the best that sort of expresses what we think of in our world with self-control was right online. It's vocabulary.com, vocabulary.com. And I just thought it was right down to earth. Here's what it says. Self-control is the quality that allows you to stop yourself from doing the things you want to do, but that might not be in your best interest. That's a pretty clear definition. I mean, it has some questions that are raised by it, but, but, but you see that. So uh, to think about this, have you ever uh, been on a diet, uh, go to work, and, and there's a big bag of potato chips right there, and uh, you just start eating one or two, and, and suddenly the whole bag is gone. And you think, I feel terrible. There's grease all over my hands. And then you walk over to the scales, and you've gained two pounds. I'll never do that again. I'll never do that again. You walk back to your desk, and... There's another bag of chips there. <laughs> Self-control is saying no to that next bag of chips. So according to that vocabulary.com definition, self-control is the ability to engage in better behavior by being able to tell yourself no to bad things. No to that um, sugar donut in the break room. No to that sarcastic comment that you want to make, that Demetrius and Ellisie never made to one another, you know, uh, that you want to make somebody in your family or at work, uh, no to that website that you know you shouldn't go to. That, that's self-control. But the question is how? And I think that very term self-control is a problem. That's what I think. And I'll tell you for a couple of reasons. One, because when you think about self-control, it, it's like we have to be two people. 
Who is the self doing the controlling? Who is the self being controlled? Do you see the problem with this? It's like we're ripped apart by this thing. And then, for those of us, when we come to the Bible, we see self-control, self-governance, is what gets us into trouble. In fact, in this very text about God's Spirit wanting to do something different in your life, it had just told us that when you just control your own life, the works of the, of the flesh, with well, a rotten, it's everything that we don't want to be. So it seems to me, self-control is not the solution. It's the problem in the whole thing. So how are we to understand what the Bible is getting at with this word that's translated self-control? So I'm going to try to explain it to you. Uh, the word that is translated, because you know the, the Bible wasn't written in English. So the, the word in Greek that was translated uh, self-control is a word that was almost always used for athletes, especially for world-class athletes. And, and back in Greece, it was, it was for the Olympic athletes. And, and, and the greatest athletes in the world had their whole lives shaped by one goal. They wanted to win the race. And for the athlete, you see, and just looking at that goal, it shaped every other part of his or her life. It doesn't mean that there weren't a lot of freedoms and a lot of decisions that you make. You have those. So, so you eat, but as a world-class athlete, you, you eat the things that are good for you and that, and that further that fitness to win the race. As, as a world-class athlete, you sleep, but always you try to develop the kind of rhythms that make you fit and ready to run the, price of the, the race. So, so having that goal in mind, I want to win that Olympic prize, would, would help a person stay away from all the distractions and provide the motivation to stay from those things that would destroy their physical lives. So you see it's self-control, the way it was usually used in the biblical world, was having all of your life directed by one overarching goal. And, and, and the Apostle Paul says that's what it's like for us too. That what self-control is talking about is us having one clear goal in mind, that we keep our eyes fixed on that goal, and all other things are prioritized, all other decisions are made in the light of that. So just to show you, but that's the way he uses it. The clearest place is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. He said, this life of us becoming what God made us to be and that we long to be, he said, it's like running a race. So I put it here so you, to look, so you can look at it. He said, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So, in this race of life, he says, run in such a way as to get the prize. So everyone who competes in the games... You know, those Olympic Games. Everybody who can keep peeps in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But I'll tell you, we who follow Jesus, we do it to get a crown that's going to last forever. So as you look at this, when you read the term self-control in the Bible, it's that image that you should have in your mind. It, it's you and me having one main goal or all-consuming vision that provides guidance for every other decision that you and I make. Uh, for the Olympic athlete, it was winning the prize. But Paul in verse 25 says, the prize that even the Olympic athlete is after isn't going to last. Because in the, in the ancient uh, Olympic Games, it was a wreath that would be put around your head. and It, was, it would biodegrade. And the thing wouldn't last very long. He said, but brothers and sisters, you and I, when we get to know Jesus, we can put our eyes on something that is going to last forever and it is beautiful. Now what is it? What is it that when you give your life to Jesus, 
that, that we keep our eyes on. Uh, Christians have talked about this for years, but, but really when you read all of what Paul wrote in the Bible, it becomes so clear. He talks about it in so many ways because it was his own longing. It's what he wanted to have happen in his life. And, and uh, sometimes he would, he, would, he would use the phrase, that, that great prize is for my own life to become complete in Christ. Colossians 1.28 in the book of Romans, just after he said, oh man, I keep doing the things I don't want to do. He said, but someday, I'm going to keep my eye on this goal. Through the work of God's Spirit, my life is going to be, and his phrase is, conformed to the very image of Jesus. Um, and, and in the text that we've been studying all fall, that's what this is all about. These nine aspects of God's fruit, so beautiful. They are so beautiful. Uh, but we see in ourselves that, that they're not complete in us, Right? But it's looking at that of becoming all that God would have us to be. Free from temptation. Breaking from many of those things that we're tempted to. We give in to them and they just wreck our lives. So that if you look at Galatians 5, 16 to 21, we can be set free from this. He says, walk by the Spirit and you won't have to gratify the desires of your flesh. You know, those temptations. Which he lists some of them. What like? Uh, sexual immorality. Impurity. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. He could go on and on and even adds the phrase, and the like. So I've written for you what this self-control is about. Think about it, pray about it. So self-control in the Bible is having one all-consuming passion. One life-directing destination that really then orders every other part of your life. What is it for those of us who follow Jesus? Uh, that kind of self-control is characterized by us focusing on becoming the kinds of persons who are complete in Christ. Uh, it's a life that is characterized by what we've been studying all fall. Just think about it. A life that is characterized by love and joy and, and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. I just think about it this way. The first time people read about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, everybody says, what a beautiful person. The way that he deals with people, the way he makes decisions, it's such a beautiful and fantastic thing. God says, that's what I want to do in your life. Do you long for it? Do you long for that? So the rest of my message is going to be for those of us who long for that. So the rest of you can listen in. <laughs> So if many of us have, I just tell you, that is my longing. I, I, I just pray that you'll see this growing in, in your pastor. I just, that's my longing. So if that's so much of our longing, why is it that when we walk out, things just get us, get that out of our vision and we move away from it? What is it that gets us out of sync? So let, let the, it's, it's, it's journey language. Keep in step with the Spirit. And I've been using this, this language, being, be synced by the Spirit. So I want you to think about taking a long trip. So when you take a long trip, um, you set the destination, right? And then you get a, a, a route to get there, or at least you plug it into your GPS. So, so you know which way to go. You also know that time is a limited commodity in this world. So with limited time, you, you just can't stop everywhere and you can't do everything. So, uh, you, know, so you plan in the stops. 
You've got to stop for restroom breaks and for food and for fuel and, and so forth. So you, you plan that in. You might even add a visit to a family member or friend in the trip, but you can't, you can't get off that track too much or you, or you won't ever get to that destination. But for some people who don't engage in self-control, there will be things that get you off the path and maybe you'll never make it to that destination. You know what I'm talking about here? All right, an illustration that really hit me is the first time I flew into Miami, Florida. Uh, The school that I was the president of had a campus down in Miami. And the first time I flew uh, into Miami, you know, the, the main airport there is right in the middle of town. And it really is located in one of the most dangerous areas of Miami. I think it's gentrifying a bit now. Now, when I say anything about it, I love Miami. Uh, It's just one of the most diverse places I've ever been. I I just love it when I go there. But at the same time, there's some dangers there. So I remember the first time I got there, I was told, yeah, go straight to your hotel, Greg. Because that was back when we had some of those tourists, especially from Germany, who were shot near the airport. So I got off and I I got my rent-a-car. It it had a never-lost system in it. I was driving. But then as I looked, as I was driving toward the hotel, I looked over here to the right-hand side, and I saw tennis courts. Now, for those of you, I I like tennis. I saw tennis court. I said, I'm going to have to be here. I'm going to have to come to Miami a lot. So I I just, I don't know. I just pulled off the freeway to to go find those things so that I could go back. Unfortunately, once you got off the freeway, it took you into this one way streets, detour signs that you had one turn and then there wasn't another detour sign to tell you where to go unmarked roads and my GPS system just went kaflooey. It was, I have no, and suddenly I was in the most dangerous area of Miami not knowing if I'd ever make it back. So, so in many ways our lives are like that. Uh, we set a goal, this is the way I want to live, this is where I want to go and then something gets us off course and we wonder if we'll ever come back. So, um, I thought that with the time I've got as I really was praying about you, I I thought, all right, what are the things among us here that might get us off the wrong exit ramp and and, and get our lives out of sync with God? And I came up with three. I bet you can come up with many more. Let me just suggest them to you. I want you to pray about these and whether you might be susceptible to some of these. Uh, Exit ramp number one that I want you to be aware of as you're heading to become what God would have you to be. I just feel like doing it. I just feel like doing it. I run my own life. Who's to tell me I shouldn't do it? I just feel like it. Um, I was studying in England, and sometimes I'd drive on the M1. I have a picture here of it, and this happens so often. I'd pull off the freeway, and then they'd have these signs like this. I mean, look at all those signs. Which way are you going to go? How are you going to stop? And you're driving on the wrong side of the road anyway. Uh, it was really hard so here we are in our world and the, the way that the world tells you to live is to follow your passions now, who is somebody else to tell you what to do if you have a passion for it just follow that thing don't let anybody else be the lord of your life but I want you to know if you live like that your passions are going to get you into trouble because your feelings pull you this way and that the one that you have right now, you're not going to have it tomorrow. And sometimes your feelings and your passions conflict with one another. So on one side, let me just tell you, sometimes you have a real passion for chocolate or for ice cream. I do. I, don't, I won't ask for a witness for that, but I do. And that's you really want to have it, and, and you've got to go get some of that. 
same time, you have a passion for losing weight. So do you see how sometimes if your life is run by your feelings, how they clash with one another? Now let me make this a little bit more serious. Uh, You go to work. Let's say you're married. And yet you become very attracted to this woman or man at work. And you begin to have feelings, strong feelings in that direction. Then you go home. And you want to have a strong marriage. And you want to be a good example to your children. Do you see how, if you're just driven by your feelings and your passions, do you see how they clash with one another? Uh, I've just got to tell you this. If you live a life that is guided by your feelings, you're going to end up being ripped apart. You're going to feel yourself tugged this way and that way, and at the end of the day, the Bible tells you, you're going to be trapped by something. What you and I need, all human beings needs, is one all-consuming, all-directing, beautiful passion under which to order all of the other decisions that we make. I'll tell you, in one of his most profound observations, St. Augustine said that all sin ultimately has to do with disordered loves. Beginning to put something loving or having a passion for something and putting it in the wrong priority or the wrong place in your life, especially putting something else before God. Because the feelings that we have, they'll burn hot one day, they'll diminish the next. So the wise person, whenever you're having a passion for something, learns to pull back, before, especially making a moral decision, and, and says, Lord, will this further what I'm longing for you to do and what you want to do in my life or pull me away from you? So I, I've written this just for you to consider and to pray about. Our human feelings are messed up by sin. Can I have a witness? Any? <laughs> Our human feelings, they just drag us all over the place. You and I need to be synced by God's Spirit. So, so, so when your choices and, and priorities are ordered by this supreme desire to know Christ and to please God, you're going to begin to find yourself being set free from just being blown back and forth here and there by every temptation. So that's the first exit ramp I want you to be aware of. I just feel it. I've got to do it. Uh, exit ramp number two. Just this once. Never again. I know it's not right. Just this once. I thought of this picture I put up here. I'm sure you've all been on one of these. You pull off the freeway and you, you plan to get right back on. And so then you see a sign like this. Seven mile return. Ah! You can't get back on, and that's what happens with this. The thing I want you to see is that um, every pattern of sin that we want to have broken has, has almost always started with saying, well, just this one time. And then we think we're not going to return to it, but the next time that temptation comes up, we have already have sort of a groove in our brain, and, and we give in again. And we might even say to God, well, just one more time. And I'll tell you, the increasing number of the just one more times become what we call addictions. Uh, The more time you engage in them, the more time you're going to find how difficult it is to break from that pattern. So that's the second exit ramp. Third exit ramp. It's the way everybody's living. I was a youth pastor for a long time. I dealt with this all the time. Junior high, senior high, people say, oh, 
well, everybody else, mom, dad, everybody else is going this way. It can't be that bad. They're from a good family. It's just young people, right, to deal with this. <laughs> all right, I have a picture here for you. You've got to see. I think all of us will understand it. Uh, if, you, do you know this? Do we have this one up? You know, you know this, don't you? It's right out here, right out here. Uh, the 210, the 134. Okay, I've got to tell you, the first time I drove along the 210, it was a long time ago, uh, I was happily listening to music. I knew that I just had to stay on the 210. It was taking me up past La Cunada, someplace where I was going to be going, just singing away, driving with the flow, going with the traffic. Suddenly I end up in Burbank. <laughs> I said, how did this happen? I mean, the two t- I'm on the 210. Well, all the lanes are going. Anybody else have this ever happen to you? That to get, stay on the 210, you've got to get all the way over to the right, this one little road that goes around. I'll tell you, sometimes life is just like that. Uh, we just watch how everybody else is doing it. We've got to see that our world is affected by many people walking away from God. So simply going and doing what everybody else does doesn't mean that it's right. Far from it. So often the, the, the patterns that we have in this world can drag us the wrong way and we're just going along with the flow and find ourselves in a way of life we would never have wanted to have embraced. So I'll just, my warning is this. Be alert to the ways of the world. This idea of self-control, uh, setting this one vision to become like Christ, it also includes a carefulness about not being, and Paul's language in Romans 12, not being conformed to the patterns that we find in the world. So our minds remain consciously and intentionally just alert and ready to seek God's wisdom and his guidance. So, so those are the exit ramps I've thought of. And you say, well, you, that, that's fine and dandy for you to say that, Pastor Greg, but how do we do it? How, how, how do we find this victory to stay in sync with spirit? And I, I think Jesus teaches us now, each part of this could be a whole sermon. I thought it's almost better if I just go bang, 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 bang. I looked at Jesus facing temptation in Luke chapter 4. I think it's so powerful to watch as he is fiercely tempted and yet remains so committed to what the Father had told him to do, namely to remain sinless and die for our sins so that we could have hope. And yet that's what Satan tried to, to tempt him to get away from, and he was resolute. And so we're thankful, right? So what do we learn from him? Why do we learn from him? Uh, several things. Number one, we learn about the essential role of God's Spirit to bring about victory. Uh, if you look at Luke 4 uh, and you just look at that first verse, you see it starts with that he was full of the Holy Spirit and then you get down at the end. He goes out in the power of the Holy Spirit. So th- I know this is a confusing thing and I, I don't think I could even clear it up for you. There is one God who has always existed as Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was following the will of his Father and somehow anointed by and empowered by the Spirit, and yet one God. I can't fully explain how that is. Uh, Maybe I'll ask Pastor Jeff Madison to have a whole sermon on it next week. But here, at least, I'm going to tell you this. If Jesus needed to wait for the anointing and the sense of presence of the Holy Spirit in order to face temptations and to enter into work and ministry, how much more I do and how much more you do. Uh, We we are still so susceptible to things. We're so susceptible to temptation. Going in our own strength will not get us there. We need the power. We need the power of God. And that's what He's given us. Uh, I, I want you to learn 
uh, to wake up each morning and to uh, count on the presence of the Holy Spirit. And to say, I know what I'm going to face today, but I know you were with me, so here's my lesson to you. You're not alone in your battles against temptation. So daily, wake up. And I, I try to do this each morning. I, I know of many things that are ahead of me, and I wake up in the morning and say, Father, I, I need to be aware, so aware of your presence as we sang. And I know that yours is the power that raised Jesus from the dead, so that's sufficient even for my temptations. So acknowledge that presence and then live each moment counting upon his strength. Will you do that? Lesson two. The the inevitability of temptation. Uh, Many well-meaning churchgoers, and some of you have talked to me about this as well. Sometimes you've been a Christian for a while and you just cannot understand how long do I have to walk with him before I don't face temptation anymore. We, we get this kind of idea that once we become really strong Christians, we're not even going to feel temptation. I mean, how strong do you have to become before you're not going to feel any temptation in this world? Okay, here's a question again. We're in church, so you know the answer to this. Who was the most spiritually mature person ever to walk on this earth? Okay, we're in church, you know the answer. The answer is... Well, it sounded like we had some debate about that question. But, but it's Jesus. It is Jesus. Now, when you look at this story, was he tempted? Well, yes, he was. These aren't pseudo-temptations. It wasn't playing games here. The book of Hebrews will put it, Jesus was tempted in every way, just in the way that you and I were, but, but without sin. And, and so the point that I, I want you to grab hold of is this. Don't be discouraged simply because you face temptation. And I've written this down. I hope it's there for your encouragement. You are still a a mortal human being. And and just know that you're still very susceptible to sin. So the issue in the way you live your life is not whether you feel tempted. You and I are going to face temptation as long as we live in this fallen world. The issue that we have to wrestle with is whether we're going to obey God or give in to the temptation. Lesson three. There is something, if you read that story that Demetri and Ellisie gave to us, there is something about the power of Scripture. There's something about the power of Scripture here. Did you notice it? Now, on one side, you can't miss the point that the devil knew Scripture too. And he ripped it out of context, tried to get it to, to pull Jesus away. So sometimes we can be deceived even by somebody just taking a verse or a line out of Scripture and say, well, look at what the Bible says. So, so this call to us, but, but when Jesus spoke the Scripture Truthfully, it was powerful and even Satan had to back away. I don't fully understand this, but I've experienced it. There is such power in Scripture to be able to direct our lives. I hope you even sense it as you come to church when this word is opened, that sometimes you have a renewed commitment really to give your whole life to Jesus. Do you ever feel that? You hear this word and you say, yes, I believe it. And that's how I want to live. I pray that will happen every time we worship. But when you go home and you read the Bible, and I hope you will, uh, you'll begin to have the same things happening. So I hope you'll become the very best student of this word that you can be. And I'd even encourage you to memorize some of the Bible. What would I recommend to you? Well, for those of you who uh, go online, a website I really, really love is BibleGateway.com. BibleGateway, one word, BibleGateway.com. They send to me one Bible verse onto my telephone every day, and they send it to my email as well. 
and I read it, and sometimes I commit it to memory. And you think, what will that do? It's amazing. Sometimes I'll, I'll memorize it, and I'll think, I'll never think about that again. And then someone asks me a question, like some of you, and God brings it back to my memory. <laughs> sometimes the temptation is faith. And I'll tell you, it comes back into your memory. There's power in Scripture. So in the light of that, I, I want to... Always open this word when you come in and I I want you to become the best student you can be and be guided and empowered by it. And then lesson four. I didn't know how to put this, but but, but I I think Jesus teaches us, and I'm going to call it the temptation of misplaced priorities. And, And by that, I mean, one of the biggest and most subtle temptations we face is putting good things into the wrong place. Maybe even into the place of God. Putting something good maybe ahead of our family when it shouldn't be. Uh, and, and I see, where do you see that in that temptation of Jesus? I see it here by the very way that Satan tempted Jesus. Have you ever thought about what, what he used to tempt Jesus? When we just read it as 21st century Americans, it makes no sense to us. Uh, he knew that Jesus was spiritually mature. So he didn't tempt him in the way, like saying, Jesus, come over here. Um, I know where we can find some good opium. Come on, let's, let's go. Let's. He didn't say, oh, come on, Jesus, let's go over this way. I Find a good strip club over here. We can go, I'll, we'll go get in the trouble. He didn't do that. He knew that that wouldn't be tempting to Jesus. What did he tempt him with? Well, with bread. Bread? <laughs> Maybe booze. Not bread. <laughs> bread. Uh, Power, might understand that more. Security. Now, when you think of those things, they're all good things. They can be misused, all good things. Bread. I mean, what kind of a temptation is that? Until you see, he'd been hungry 40 days without food. I mean, Lynn, would you have wanted to eat the bre- bread? After 18 hours, you told me, yeah, when the scripture was being read. But the other side, the biggest part was this Jesus had made this vow to his father to fast for 40 days before going into ministry. Would he keep his word or would he... You see it? You begin to see it. Um, Power. Satan says, I'll give you all the power. All the power I have, I'll give it all to you. Just, 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 you know, do what I ask you to do. Power of Jesus was ultimately to be used to bring about our salvation. The sinless one, remaining sinless, in our place as sinful people. That's the real power of Jesus. He wanted to offer him the power before the cross. You feel the temptation? Uh, security. All of us want that. But security not in being in his Father's will, but, but security in something else out here in this world. And that's, boy, that we're tempted by that, especially to find it in money, in our investments, securities, we sometimes call it. So as we look at that, I, I think the thing I want you to know is one of the most subtle temptations you and I face as we grow in our lives with God is this ongoing temptation to put good things before the best things, uh, temporary things before the eternal things, anything in the place of God. It might be your business. Your business is good. Work is good. God works. And yet I'll tell you, when your work takes the place of worship or comes into the place of your responsibility as a husband or a wife or as a parent, it, it, will, do, it, it will ruin your life. Sports. I love sports. I think most of you know that. A lot of sports illustrations. And yet, as, as much fun as sports might be, I'll tell you, sports can be a rotten God. 
It can take a place that is more important to you than anybody else and even than God. You don't even show up to worship because some sporting event is on television. I'll tell you, if something, anything has become more important to you than God, then it's going to make you its slave someday. And uh, the temptation of misplaced priorities we learn from Jesus. I want to give you one final thought about self-control. Now, this is God's work. It is the work of God's Spirit. So be encouraged. If you have received Jesus as Savior, you've got His Spirit dwelling within. But what responsibility do you and I have to stay away from places of temptation? And I mean, is it just that, okay, <clears throat> it's all God's work, so I'll just sort of sit back here and let Him sort of carry me on? Or is it that when we give in uh, to temptation, we, we, we just complain, and I've heard this so often, we just complain, God, why did you let me do that? Um, so, true self-control is a work of God. It is produced in and through us through the Holy Spirit till we own that we need that power from God and that we can't whip it up from within ourselves. Uh, we're going to always fail. There, there's no hope for victory apart from God's spirit at the same time when you read the Bible you and I made in God's image have been clearly given a responsibility to use our minds to use all the strength and energy that God entrusts to us to fight temptation and to pursue godliness I, I, listen how, how, how uh, powerfully Paul puts it in Colossians 3 5 he says put it to death that's what the language he is put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature Put to death sexual immorality. Put to death impurity. Put to death evil desires. Put to death greed. Don't be deceived into thinking that you can sort of dabble close to those places where you always give in and go away unscathed. Galatians 6-7 says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you begin to sow in your mind and your life, that, that's what's going to... That's what's going to to flourish within you and it will choke out the life of God. I I think that the best way for me to put the way this reliance on God's Spirit and the the responsibility to use your mind and your energy to pursue God is put by Paul himself in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. I put the verses here, don't I? Yeah. So here's our responsibility. God starts this work in us when you receive Jesus as Savior. Now, we are to work or to bring to completion your own salvation. But but how can we do that? Well, with fear and trembling. You just don't want to displease God. You keep your eye on that goal. For, you say, but I can't do it. Yes, you can't. But it is God who works in you. Both to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And what is his good purpose in you? To make you complete in Christ. See, this journey that you and I are on is to be led by and synced by God's Spirit. And the journey is to be directed by an all-consuming, life-directing desire to know Christ and become like him. So I want you to fix your eyes on him. And, and, and becoming that kind of person who represents him well. Remember that when he faced temptation, he fixed his eyes on another goal. Uh, and that goal was he was going to die as the sinless one for sinful people. Who are those people for whom he would die? Uh, that is us. He had us in his mind. 
And for him to be able to bear the punishment for your sin and mine, he had to resist temptation. Do you see that? So he alone was able to live the life that you and I all should live, but none of us has. So that, in living that life, he was able to die the death that all of us should have to die, but now none of us has to, because he did it. And he did it for us. Fix your eyes upon Jesus and on the fact that he will remake you. So I'm, with that in mind, I'm going to leave you with this vision and goal, the way that the Apostle Paul put it near the end of his life. I love it. In Philippians chapter 3, he, he says, I want to know Christ. Uh, I want to know the fellowship even of his sufferings. I want to become like him. And then, then this, which I really resonate with. He said, it's not that I have already obtained all this. Do you know that I want to say that to you as senior pastor here? I preach this to you. It's, it's not that I've obtained it. It's not, Paul says, that I've already arrived at that goal. But this is my testimony to you too, and I hope it will be yours. I press on. In spite of that, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. One thing I do, I'm going to forget what is behind. He's taken care of that. And I'm going to strain toward what is ahead. I press toward the goal to win that prize for which God has called me heavenward. And he's done it in Christ Jesus. May that give direction. Praise God. May that give direction to all of our lives that we may live to his glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, my brothers and sisters. Thank you. Let me lead us in prayer. So, Father, take this, your word. In it, there's power. For some who have come who have never known you, may they know that you're real somehow, and may this be the day that they come to trust Jesus as Savior and, and, and know your presence and power and love within them. I pray for that, Father. For the rest of us, many of us have walked with you a long time. Sometimes we wonder why it's taking so long for us to become complete. And yet we rest in this promise that it's your work and you say that what you've started in us, you will complete. So Father, do it. We open our lives afresh to you today. Complete your work in us, Father, that when people see us, they see you dwelling within us, working through us, and they will be drawn to you. And to the Lord Jesus, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.